Thank you, Chris and Emily. So appreciate you. Uh, if you're new with us, we don't do this every week. Um, this is like a once-a-year financial update to just be transparent with you about where we are, uh, where we're going, um, how God is providing. This, this is a facility. This is not the church. Y'all are the church, okay? The church is a people. So the church gathered, and the church gathers, and the church scatters. So when you say going to church, that's kind of like saying going to family, okay? It doesn't make sense. You are the church. This is just a building. It's a facility to facilitate gospel ministry in our city and around the world. So thank you for your generosity in being facilitators to facilitate a facility that facilitates the spread of the gospel. Uh, I didn't practice that. I'm on caffeine. Um, Well, welcome to Fellowship Nashville. I want you to imagine that you're a first century Jew living in the town of Tiberias. It's the largest town in your region, nestled on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee to the east. Beautiful place to live, but life is difficult. Why? Well, your land is occupied by foreign invaders. Your family used to be wealthy, but the Romans have stolen your best fields just outside of town to use them for raising crops for their own troops. Not only that, but their oppressive taxes have left you impoverished and on the brink of starvation. Detachments of Roman soldiers parole your streets, and you better not look them in the eye or risk getting pushed around. In fact, your neighbor's teenage son came home last week bloodied and battered because he didn't move out of the way quick enough on a narrow street. Like most of your Jewish countrymen, there's a a low-grade fever of anger and resentment in your soul. The bitterness you feel towards these Roman pigs brews and festers just below the surface. When you visit the town market with what little money you have left after taxes, your fellow townspeople are always talking in hushed tones about a revolt. It's about time we got rid of these Gentile scumbags. You and whose army? You kind of think to yourself under your breath. At night, you gather around the fire, and Grandpa tells stories that you heard from his grandpa about Judas Maccabee. Ah, those days. Judas and his sons, oh, oh, to live back then. When these heroes led a revolt against the Seleucid Empire, giving Israel 80 years of freedom from foreign oppression. If only God would raise up someone to push out these Romans and lead us to freedom again, you wish to yourself. Sometimes you even daydream about joining the Sakari, the Jewish daggermen, zealots who are thirsty for Roman blood. Wouldn't it feel good to sneak up behind a Roman soldier in a crowded marketplace, silently stab them in the back, and then just blend in with the crowd? Ah, but it's just too risky. Your family counts on you to to keep the one field that you have left, and if you get caught, you're dead. People who rebel against Rome end up on a cross. In fact, you know of two guys in your lifetime who have tried. One of them named Thaddeus, claiming to be a Jewish Messiah, got so far as to gathering an army of 400 men, 400 rebels. Well, where is he now? Crucified. Dead. 
but you, your family, your friends, your neighbors, all hope that one day the real Messiah is going to show up. And when he does, then it will be time to fight. Then it will be time to draw swords. Then, then it'll be time to avenge the nation. And the Romans won't even know what hit them. And then rumors hit your ears. Rumors of a young rabbi with radical ideas and talk of a kingdom. This Jesus of Nazareth. They say he speaks with more authority than anyone they've ever heard. They say that he's even caused the blind to see and the lame to walk. There's whispers everywhere. Could this be the one? Could this be the Messiah? Then you hear in the marketplace that a crowd is gathering on a hillside not far from Capernaum to hear him speak. Even though it's a 10-mile walk, you don't have to think twice. You run home, grab your best dagger, conceal it in your cloak, hurry off to join the multitude that is gathered to find out what this Jesus, this revolutionary is all about. This could be the day that sparks a fire that burns Rome to the ground and puts Israel back on the map. You're out of breath when you get there. You're late, but you haven't missed it entirely. Jesus is still talking. You sit down in the back of the crowd just in time to hear Jesus say, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And you hear people (laughs) spitting around you, Gentiles, tax collectors. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you had showed up that day hoping for a revolution, you would have been disappointed. You would have been confused, maybe even a little bit angry. What kind of backwards thinking is this? Love your enemies? Pray for the Romans? Are you kidding me? Seriously, Jesus? Who do you think you are? Good morning. And welcome to Fellowship Nashville. We're back in the 21st century now. <laughs> My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here. And it's a pleasure to have you with us this morning as we're continuing our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached some 2,000 years ago by Jesus on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And today we're going to wrap up the section of the sermon where Jesus is illustrating the requirements of what it really takes to get into the kingdom of heaven. And he's already told us, shockingly, that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees to make it. And that's shocking because the scribes are the squeaky clean moralists. They're the most religious ones. They're the ones who obey the Old Testament law the best. Everybody put them up on a pedestal and said, okay, that's righteous. That, though, if anybody's right with God, it's the scribes, it's the Pharisees. 
We've already heard Jesus say things like, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And we've heard it, we've also heard Jesus say, and you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks lust, with lustful intent has already committed adultery in their heart. And it's not as though Jesus is laying down a new law here. No, he's simply explaining the original intent of the Old Testament, the original intent of the Old Testament law. He's confronting the Pharisees and the scribes who, while technically obeying the letter of the law, were finding all kinds of creative ways to wiggle out and wiggle around and work around the spirit of the law. And now Jesus is telling us not only to love our neighbor, but to love our enemies. How can we do this? How can anyone do this, Jesus? This seems so far out of reach. How can anyone gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven? And then there's the kicker at the end of verse 48. Read this out loud with me. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. Is there any hope for imperfect people like me? Is there any hope for imperfect people like you? Hold that thought. Put a pin in it. There is hope. <laughs> I don't want to walk out in despair right now. Just stick around. There is hope. But let's back up to verse 43 and verse by verse take a look at this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And what's fascinating about this, this verse is that the first half you shall love your neighbor, is clearly found in the Old Testament. But the second half, and hate your enemy, I mean, you can look for days. Flip through every page of your Old Testament, you will not find it anywhere. It's not there. So this, what, so how, did they, how were these people hearing that? Well, they were hearing it from their religious teachers who were the scribes and the Pharisees. Love your neighbor, and hate your enemy. So apparently, this must have been a creative pharisaical clarification to the law to make it easier to obey. It must have been their way of wiggling around the spirit of the law. They must have been saying, of course God says to love your neighbor, but it's okay to still hate your enemy. I mean, who wouldn't, right? Just do unto others as they do unto you. If they are kind to you, well, then you be kind to them. But if they treat you badly, then you can treat them badly. If they don't talk to you, you don't have to talk to them. If they hit you, you can hit them back. This is the pattern of reciprocal treatment. This is the common way, so to speak, in every human culture. It's the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees but it's not the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. How do we know? Well, let's look at what Jesus teaches in verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying here that the true offspring of God, true children of God, sons of the father in heaven don't hate their enemies. True offspring of God love their enemies and even go so far as to pray for their good. Wow, that's pretty radical, isn't it? The Greek word translated into English as love here is the word agape. Many of you have probably heard of that word. This is the, the divine type of love characteristic of God himself. 
who pursues his enemies with radical, self-giving, sacrificial, and redeeming love. A heart that loves its enemies is a heart that reflects the character, the very character of God himself. And we know this because of God, how God reveals himself in the Old Testament. There's a scene back in Exodus. Um, God has just rescued the people of Israel from uh, slavery in Egypt. They cross the Red Sea on dry land. They come to the shadow of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up and um, receives the law on tablets. Remember all that story? And what are the Israelites then doing? They're like, well, he's been gone a long time. Maybe we should melt all our gold and make a golden calf and worship it as the God who rescued us. Uh, yeah. Um, I do that, and then I think of all the ways that my heart goes sideways worshiping other things, and I'm not so hard on them. But they're making a golden calf. Moses is up there, and um, the story goes a little bit further, and Moses is wanting God to reveal himself to him. I say, Moses asks, God, can I see your glory? Can I see your glory? And God says, um, no. <laughs> if, if I show my face to you, you're, you're going to fry, okay? But here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll take you to the top of the mountain. I'll hide you in a crevice. I'll cover you with my hand, and then I will pass by, and I'll let you see me, my back, the, the backside of my glory, okay? The trail of my glory. And you know what God said when he passed by Moses? It's found in Exodus 34, 6. Go and read this out loud with me as well. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is God's self-revelation. This is God talking about himself. This is what I'm like. And, and the people of Israel treasured this verse. In fact, it's quoted through the Psalms and through the prophets. It's found a lot of places from then on in the Old Testament as the people of Israel reflect back on this event, on this very day. Why did they treasure it so much? Well, because earlier that day, the people of Israel had rebelled against God. Remember the golden calf thing? The ungrateful nation began worshiping an idol. They turned their back on God. They stiff-armed him. And God was ready and told Moses as such, he was ready to wipe them out and start over with Moses. And Moses pled with God, pled with him to have mercy. And what did God do? He had mercy. And the people of Israel cherished this verse about God's character because they realize that the only reason they lived that day was because of the mercy and grace, the self-giving, self-sacrificing, redeeming, agape love of God. Agape love extended to them when they did not deserve it, extended to them when they had set themselves up as enemies of the God who had rescued them. The people of Israel, and we need to know this, we need to reflect on this, because we're in the same boat. The people of Israel were God's people not because they were so great, but because God was so gracious. The people of Israel were God's people not because they were so moral, but because God was so merciful. The people of Israel were God's people not because they were so lovely, but because God so loved them. 
to love someone that doesn't deserve to be loved. To love an enemy is to reflect, reflect the very heartbeat, the very character of God himself. Do you see this? Jesus goes on to expound on God's gracious love in the middle of verse 45, back in the Sermon on the Mount. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Remember, this is an agrarian society. And God gives sun and rain indiscriminately to both the righteous and the unrighteous. He lavishes his common grace, his kindness, his patience upon everyone, upon all, because he is a God who is rich in mercy, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And my friends, this is a very good thing. Because even though you may be able to look down the aisle at others and think, well, at least I'm better than that person. Well, guess what? That person is not the standard. That's comparative righteousness. The scribes and Pharisees were very good at that and it didn't cut it. That person is not the standard. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Perfection is the standard. Because even though you and I may be able to look at that other person and go, okay, we're better than that, we're still all offspring of Adam. We're all enemies of God. We've all failed to love him with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We've all failed to love our neighbors as ourselves. We've all stiff-armed God in some form or fashion. But listen to the words of Paul. I love these verses in Romans chapter five. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died. For who? The ungodly. But, Christ, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Jesus came to love enemies. Through Jesus, God moved toward us in redeeming love. Instead of judgment and retaliation, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came to love his enemies. He prayed for those who persecuted him. He, when he hung on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He practiced what he preached. This, my friends, is the cross-shaped enemy love of God himself, but it's so rarely displayed on this earth. Look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, everybody around you would have gone, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, do the same? Jesus didn't do that. You're, the crowd would have been doing that. Jesus is saying here, there's, there's nothing really that special about reciprocal love. And he's such a, a, a brilliant preacher. <laughs> so brilliant. He's using the lowest of the lowest as examples of this, at least in their minds. The, the 
the tax collectors were, were Jewish people who were working. They were sellouts. They were working for the Romans because they had all the social connections. They knew what doors to knock on to e- extract and exploit and um, cheat people in, in, in taxing. And, and so they were, they were betraying their own countrymen. And Jesus uses them. As an example, even the lowest of the low on your man-made scale of morality practice reciprocal love. The tax collectors do that. You've got to be better than that. And then there's the, your Roman oppressors. Even they greet their own when they see each other, Jesus says. There's nothing special about reciprocal kindness. But if you follow me and you learn from me the way of enemy love, that's when the world will sit up and take notice. That's when people will think, wow, that's different. Because that's the reflection of the very character of God himself. Some of you may know the story of, of Corey Ten Boom. She was a Jesus follower in the Netherlands during World War II. And at great personal risk, she and her family hid Dutch Jews from the Nazis Her book, The Hiding Place, talks talks all about that. Highly recommend reading it. They were eventually caught, arrested, and she and her sister, Betsy, were imprisoned in Ravensbrück concentration camp, where Betsy lost her life. And Corey watched. Corey survived the the whole ordeal and wrote a book, um, several books about it afterwards. Uh, She wrote this in her book, Tramp for the Lord. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, so the war's over. It's 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with a message that God forgives. It was a truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind. I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And even though I can't find a scripture for it, I believe that God then places a sign that says, no fishing allowed. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and in silence collected their wraps, and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. The place was Ravensbrook, and the man who was making his way forward had been a guard one of the cruelest guards. 
Now he was in front of me. He and thrust out, a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. I knew that not, not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to also return to the outside world, rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love. It was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit, as recorded in Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom has been given to us. Corey's insight here is profound, isn't it? She had tried to love her enemy, but realized that she did not have the power on her own. She did not have the cross-shaped, God-like enemy love in and of herself. Similarly, the Pharisees and scribes had tried. They tried to obey God's law about loving their neighbors, but soon realized they couldn't love all their neighbors in and of themselves. But instead of calling out to God for help, what did they do? They just added a little addition to the law. Love your neighbor 
and hate your enemy. So they could then self-righteously check it off the list and move on. But self-righteous, pharisaical obedience is not enough. Jesus tells us that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and that's why he closes his, this section of the Sermon on the Mount with the profound words of verse 48 that spell out the requirements for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Hear them again. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But how? There's absolutely no way, Jesus. We are all imperfect people. As I said before, before you lose hope, let me remind you of some words we've already heard. It's been almost a couple months ago now. Some words from Jesus we heard in verse 17 that are key. We can't miss these, so we're going to go back to them. I want you to read these words out loud for me or with me. Verse 17, this is words of Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Who is the only one who can perfectly fulfill the law of God? You can say it. Jesus. Who is the only one who did perfectly fulfill the law of God? Who then is our only hope of entrance into the kingdom of heaven? Who then is the only one who can give us a new heart? Jesus. Who then is the only one who can change us from the inside out? Say it with me. Jesus. Who then is the only one who gives us his spirit to empower us to obey out of love instead of fear? Say it with me. Jesus. Who then is the one who can give us the cross-shaped, God-like, enemy love that enables us to pray for those who persecute us. Jesus. My friends, Jesus will never call you to do something that he won't also empower you to do. Would you say that with me? Jesus will never call us to do something that he won't also empower us to do. I'm so grateful for that. So when Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, our first response should be what? I can't. Jesus, I just can't. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And like he did for Corey Ten Boom, he will also do for us. On our own, our hearts are vengeful, they're retaliatory, they're petty, they're mean, but Jesus, the righteous one, offers himself in our place for our sake, his life in exchange for ours so that we might become children of God by grace through faith. And as children, he fills us with his spirit and gives us a new heart that's eager to follow him, eager to live out the cross-shaped way of life. When we apprentice the way of Jesus, he will remind us that while we were once enemies of God, we have now been reconciled and brought near through his blood. 
when we apprentice the way of Jesus, he will begin to take our eyes off of ourselves, off of our rights, off of our wounds, off of our revenge, and he will turn our eyes to the cross where he first loved us. When we apprentice the way of Jesus, he will enable us to move towards others with redemptive God-like agape, agape enemy love. And although we will never display this kind of love perfectly this side of heaven, we will slowly learn to love because he first loved us. My friends, this is the way, the cross-shaped way of our Jewish rabbi who loved us first when we were still enemies of God. As the worship team makes their way back to, stay, to the stage this morning, I, I want to ask you to do something. I want you to think of somebody who has wronged you, somebody who has hurt you deeply. Maybe it's someone you've tried to forgive, but you just can't. You've tried to muster up that love on your own, but it's just like, I can't do it. They hurt me too badly. They hurt me too deeply. There's still bitterness and resentment in your heart. We're going to close our service today by coming to what we often call the Lord's table. This was representative of the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, where he took two elements of a Passover meal and he reinterpreted them. He took the bread and as he broke it, he said, this is, remember, this is before he died. So the disciples are probably looking at each other going, what on earth is he doing? Uh, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. They didn't know what he was talking about, but the next day it would all be made clear as he hung on a cross and his body broke and his blood flowed down. And so Christians throughout the centuries have looked back. We've come to a table where we have broken bread and we have wine or grape juice where we take and, and we Remember the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. As we come to the table today, I want you to bring that bitterness with you, that unforgiveness with you, that coldness that you still feel in your heart. And I, I want you to come prayerfully and just say, God, would you take this? As you remind me of, of how you loved me when I was your enemy, would you enable me to let go? Would you soften my heart? Would you melt my heart and give me a love that I can't muster up on my own? Give me that cross-shaped, self-giving, self-sacrificial, self-sacrificial, redemptive love so that I can extend it to those around me. Will you give me the power that I don't have in myself to forgive? True Christianity my friends, isn't pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps or doing more and trying harder or propping yourself up with self-righteousness. True Christianity is turning to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and saying, help, help us, we can't. But you are one defense and our righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. Would you pray with me? Father, Lord, we know we can't do this on our own. We know we can't be perfect as you are perfect. But we also know that you've provided the way. 
Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death in our place to satisfy your wrath against all sin, past, present, future. To be the atonement, the covering. To be our righteousness in our unrighteousness. And now he clothes us in his righteousness when we by grace through faith accept the free gift of salvation. And so when you look at us, you see us in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel, that good news. That while we were still sinners, while we were your enemies, Christ died for us. And as we come to this table and bring our bitterness and our anger and our unforgiveness, would you melt our hearts as we remind ourselves of your love, your lavish, self-sacrificial, cross-shaped love for us. And in this we pray. Amen. As the band uh, leads us in a couple songs, I invite you to stand with us. And as is our custom, come in groups of 10 to 12, surround the table. We will lead you in, in communion in small groups, then you head back and then fill in and replace the group that just left. Let's sing together.